Hi, my name's Fiona. I'm going to bring us the Bible reading this morning. It's from the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. You can follow along on page 5 of your pew sheet if you like, or you can just listen as I read. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except what God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For the rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Thank you, Fiona. Well, last week, Joe and I... um did one of those things that you do to make yourself feel like a real grown-up person, and that is we did our taxes. You know that feeling you get after you do your ta- and the accountant comes. Well, we he kind of comes to us in our case, and uh, and at the end of the process, he says, "Okay, we're, we're done now." You just feel, "Yes, I've done my taxes. I'm not a complete douchebag." Um, now, when you do your tax return as a Christian, it really highlights. Um, the attitude that you have as a Christian to the state. Just how much are you going to push those laws, those classic Australian laws that enable you to, you know, avoid tax and and maximise your income? You, if, you, if you're thinking about it, you might think thoughts like, well, like, what do you do if you don't actually like the way the government's using your money, using the tax tax dollars. Perhaps they're using it to prop up the gambling industry or, you know, prop up the high-polluting industries. Ever since the early church existed, uh, it was born in the midst of the Roman Empire, ruled by a Caesar who called himself God and who promoted practices completely antithetical to that Christian gospel. Nevertheless, Jesus and the apostles have taught a healthy and humble respect for the state, for the authorities. Christians are to be good citizens. That is the general Christian teaching. So the question is, why is this so important and what are the limits to this? A passage from Romans 13 is teaching this very concept. In in fact, it's probably the most famous passage in the whole Bible that teaches this concept. And it's sandwiched between passages about love and it's also in a broader context about not being 
um, persuaded or influenced by the ways of the world as well. The fact that it's sandwiched in between these passages about love, I think is partly a clue to what the meaning of this passage, why it's even in Romans, because perhaps it's a way, one way that Christians can show love to the world. Now, across history, there's been different ways that the church has been able to relate to the state. There's kind of four ways. Um, and the, what, the first way is called a, a Rastianism. Um, and that's nothing to do with um, Bob Marley, but it's um, Arastianism is the, the, the state controls the church. So that's one way it has occurred in history. There's also theocracy. The church controls the state. There's also Constantinianism, where a compromise, there's a compromise in which the state favours the church and the church makes accommodations to kind of work together with to maintain their favoured status. And the fourth model is this model of partnership, which I think is kind of like what we have in Australia and in, in most, most Western countries, where the church and the state recognise each other as, as having sort of unique roles and, um, and uh, they encourage and collaborate with each other in fulfilling these roles. Um, there's a kind of a loose partnership model we have in Australia. So... Um, the church has to obey the laws of the land in Australia and the state recognises the church's important role in society in running schools and hospitals and um, aged care services, services for the poor, as well as the religious contribution that the church makes, um, providing places of worship, um, weddings and funerals and that sort of thing. And so the church has a special tax status to enable it to perform its role. And I have a licence that comes from the government that enables me to, to perform weddings. Um, and, but the, the licence says I've got to perform Anglican weddings. So it's an interesting kind of uh, sort of, you know, the church and the state working together there. Um, also in the Federal House, ha, um, the, the House of Representatives, Representatives and the Senate, the speaker opens first with an acknowledgement of country and then with some prayers, I think it's very sort of old-fashioned sort of language prayers, but then the Lord's Prayer, and often that gets brought up year after year, should this still be happening, but it is still happening, believe it or not. So as we look at this passage, we will look at the, this Christian attitude of how the um, Christians are to have the right attitude towards the state, and also the limitations of that relationship. And so if you look at verse 1, Paul makes it very clear let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. So Christians are to submit to the authority of the civil government. This is everyone. It doesn't matter how important you think you are or how alternative you think you are. You might think you're kind of, you know, a bit of a rebel, a bit alternative. Then as a Christian, you don't really fit in. No, no actually, everyone has to submit to the authority. And the first reason, the, the big reason, is be, that Paul says, is that because God established the state. Verse 1, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Now, there are good and bad rulers, that is true, but God rules over them all. All civil governments are instituted by God. They deserve our respect, says Paul. But also Paul seems to be saying that the individuals who are in authority are there because of God's providential control of history. 
This is a constant theme in the whole Bible. If you look at Proverbs 8, verse 15 and 16, By me kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me princes govern and nobles all who rule on earth. Or in Daniel 2, 21, he changes, he, that is God, changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. So yes, Scott Morrison is our prime minister because God put him in that role. And also Donald Trump is the president because God put him in that role. We also have to say, though, that Malcolm Turnbull was the prime minister and also Tony Abbott, and before that, Kevin Rudd, and before that, Julia Gillard, and before that, Kevin Rudd again, before that, John Howard, and before that, Paul Keating, and Bob Hawke, and then um, uh, Malcolm Fraser, and then Gough Whitlam, all because God put them in that role. We're not saying that God's of one political party or another. He's just saying he's sovereign. And um, they all held the office of prime minister. Their governments had, had power in that period because God put them there. For there is no authority except that which God has established. And Paul says because all governing authorities are established by God, Christians should submit to them as a matter of conscience. It says in Romans 13 verse 5, recognizing, uh, it says that in Romans 13 verse 5, and it says that we should recognize that God has given them that role and go, well, in good conscience, then I have to submit to them. Now, part of submitting as a matter of conscience means that Christians, um, that if, 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 if the state asks Christians to betray their God, then hopefully your conscience will play a role in holding you back from doing that. Christians must not mindlessly participate in state-sanctioned sin. Christians should not submit to the state also out of fear of punishment. This was the excuse of the of the soldiers and the officers in the Nazi, under the Nazi regime. Uh, you know, I was just taking orders. I had to do it, or else I would have, I would have been punished. Uh, Paul's not suggesting that. So the conscience plays a big role in how we submit as Christians. Leon Morris, the Melbourne theologian who's long died a long time ago, but he, he wrote this, conscience is a powerful reinforcement of the outward directions to submit to the state. But once conscience is brought in, there is a limit. What is against conscience cannot be done. Conscience at one and the same time obliges us to be obedient and sets a limit to that obedience. Now, we've got to listen carefully here because Paul's not an idiot. He's actually being very reasonable in what he's saying here. And let's see what he's not saying. Paul is not suggesting that all rulers in authority are using their God-given authority in a godly way. He's not saying that. Uh, For example, the early church father Origen understood it this way. He said, um, Is an authority which persecutes the children of God which attacks the faith and which undermines our religion from God? We shall answer this briefly. Nobody will deny that our senses, our sight, sound and thought, are given to us by God. But although we get them from God, what we do with them is up to us. God's judgment against the authorities will be just if they have used the powers they have received according to their own ungodliness and not according to the law of God. So Paul is saying that even when the government in power is not to your liking, is even promoting unbiblical laws, which is usually the case in every setting around the world, 
um, Christians still should think long and hard. Um, the, the, the extent to which the authorities, the rulers, are following God's law isn't necessarily an indicator of how much we should submit to them. Paul's saying, in general, even in the context of the Roman Empire from where, where he's writing, still submit. But you've got to be limited a bit by your conscience. Christians need to get a big view of God's sovereignty. In the Old Testament, we read that God even had his hand over the appointment of pagan kings. In Isaiah 44 and 45, it talks about how God appointed uh, King Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia, as his own shepherd. That's the language it uses. And God would use Cyrus to do his work. And the Israelites struggled with this. They were like, God, what are you doing appointing this pagan king? And so to this question, God says through the prophet Isaiah in, in chapter 4, Isaiah 45, 12 and 13, God says, it is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So we don't fully understand why God does what he does with governing authorities. We just have to trust him. And I think because of this dynamic that um, we are, uh, Christians are to have with God and with the state authority, accepting that God is in control, we need to be careful as Christians about our, ident- our political identity, to not have our identity based too much in politics, in other words. Um, Annabelle Crabb published an article on the ABC website uh, this week looking at Australians and our self-perception. And there was a survey that the ABC did of about 54,000 Australians about how we sort of base our, what we base our identity on. And um, it showed that most Australians base their identity, first of all, on their politics, which surprised me, political beliefs first, their nationality second, their gender third, their language fourth, um, their job fifth, their sexual orientation sixth, their ethnicity seventh, and their religion down at eighth. Now, many Christians I meet, I think, are similar to this. I, I, I've met many Christians who, um, if you talk to them about how their faith is going and what's be, God been doing in their life, they're a bit mute. But then if you talk to them about politics, they get all excited, you know. And um, sometimes I think we have to watch ourselves as Christians about um, where really our identity lies. There's an American pastor and author who I really like called Scott Sauls, and he he was writing to his, tweeting actually, to his American audience recently. He said, you are a Christian before you are a Democrat or Republican. Do your friends, do your friends, neighbours, colleagues and children sense this? We should feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. If this is not the case, then we need to take a serious look at who is actually discipling us. I'm saying this because I'm saying we always have to remember with politics, God is in control. He'll put in power whom he will put in power and you will not necessarily understand why. So as you submit to the authority of the state, put your trust ultimately in God. And Paul says a reason to do this is because of wisdom. We should, Christians should submit because it is wise Look at verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, 
but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear, fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. See, governments are needed to enable human beings to flourish, to hold us back from destroying each other and having anarchy. Without the state, there would be no law. Self-interest would lead to self-destruction. So in a way, governments are given by God as a form of grace to help us. Um, Look at verse 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Paul is saying to the Christians in Rome, if you do good, generally speaking, you shouldn't have to worry about the state. If you do bad, then you will have to worry about the state. You risk even the sword, he uses that language, you risk death. In the same way that police today carry guns in, in Australia, so did the Roman police carry swords. And, you know, if you were caught up in something, you could end up being you know, killed. Um, And uh, in Paul's day also, the state exercised capital punishment. So Paul explains that when the state inflicts punishment on evildoers, they are standing in kind of of as an agent of God's wrath. That's the language he's using in this passage, whether the state realises this or not. So, So I said before that Paul is being reasonable here. How is he being reasonable? It sounds a little bit kind of like he's a conservative you know, politically conservative persons trying to hold up the authority of the state or something. He's actually being anti-extremist. That's what he's doing. So there were some Christians in, in the early church, time of the early church, as there are today, um, who, who thought that the radical demands of the gospel meant that they had to be sort of hardcore and anti-the world. And so they did away with the institutions given to them. Um, so like we're, we, you know, even government, even marriage, we don't need marriage, that's worldly. And um, the, the apostles were like, hang on, everyone, um, actually these things are, these things are fine. Um, a marriage, sex is fine in the right context. Even government itself is, is fine in the right context. So Paul is resisting this kind of, um, you know, thinking that um, caused, caused Christians to st- try and escape the world. Um, the apostles had to help the Christians see that these institutions, such as marriage and government, were given by God for the good of human beings. Um, even imperfect marriages are for, are for the good of human beings, even imperfect governments are for the good of human beings. No government is going to be perfectly moral and upright. And in fact, some of them are completely messed up. And, and we have to remember Paul understood the, the, the terrible things about the Roman Empire as well as the good things. So, I mean, he understood what, where the Roman Empire could go wrong. He'd been beaten up um, by the authorities, thrown in jail. He knew that uh, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. He knew that the rulers of this age had crucified the Lord of glory. He, he writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8. He knew that Christians suffered under tribulation, distress, persecution, and the sword in his day. Romans 8 verse 35. But at the same time, Paul had privileges from the Roman authorities. He, had, he was a citizen of Rome, and this helped him in Philippi. We can read about that in Acts 16. And in Jerusalem, we can read about that in Acts 21. When Paul was in Achaia, the Jews approached the Roman authorities and asked them to make um, the preaching of the gospel illegal. And actually, 
the, the, authority, the, the authorities in Achaia said, no, we're going to allow this to occur. So Paul had some negative experiences with the state and also positive experiences. And in general, he's saying, look, in general, it's, the Roman authorities are fine. In general, you know. Uh, it reminds me of that famous scene from the life of Brian, you know. All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, the education, the wine, the public order, irrigation, roads, the freshwater system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, shut up. You know, that scene, that's, that's a great scene. It's true, like most governments are like this. Now, while there are regimes in the world that are, are fully corrupt and abusive towards its citizens, Paul is, is writing in this context, in the Roman Empire con- context. And, and the, the authorities will praise those people who serve the, the community and fit in and obey the laws. And to this day, Paul's generalisation is, is, is generally true. Even if the authorities perpetuate laws that are not quite right, just do what is right and they probably won't take any notice of you. They might even commend you. Now, we have to look at the limitations of all of this as well. And the Bible deals with these limitations. This is not me just deconstructing the Bible. This is the Bible itself showing you the nuance. There, there are governing authorities that come along that are truly evil, aren't there? What, what we are seeing now with the Syria, Syrian regime is... Paul's not, point is not necessarily for this situation, what we see in Somalia, in South Sudan, in North Korea, in Yemen, in Sudan as well, in Afghanistan, in Libya, Burundi, Venezuela. These are countries whose regimes are so unjust and corrupt that they have completely turned on their people. Paul is not saying to submit to these states unconditionally. He's not some kind of masochist. Rather, he's saying that all authority comes from God, so you submit to God first and then to the government as you can with your conscience. It is to acknowledge that the institutions of the state have been placed over us and has the right to our respect and deference. And Paul uses this same kind of logic in other ways. He he talks about, you you know, respecting your spiritual leaders, uh, one another, uh, he says, children obey your parents. He's using the same logic. There's an authority that comes from God above, above them, and so you, you sort of sit in line with that authority structure. In each case, one person is to recognise a rightful leadership role that another human being has in his or her life. But when we do this, we recognise that God is the ultimate authority. And Paul doesn't always explicitly spell this out in every context that he's writing. He assumes that your ultimate submission is to God and that no human being can ever stand as the ultimate authority for a believer. And there's also this kind of concept that's in this passage as well as as is taught by Jesus, which is the idea of spheres of authority. Um... The state has one sphere of authority and Jesus has another sphere of authority as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Uh, Paul hints at this in verse 7 of our passage. In verse 7, Paul's borrowing sort of from Jesus. Jesus who says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's 
and to God what is God's in Matthew 22. Paul words it differently. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Like Jesus, Paul thinks the state has a limited sphere of authority. Limited in the sense that you give to the state and respect to the state to the extent to which that is owed to the state. No more. And this is relevant because, as I said earlier, uh, the emperor is viewed as divine in, in, the, in, the Roman, in the Roman culture as a god in the pantheon. And Paul, and Jesus, teaches that Christians should give to Caesar the taxes that are owed to Caesar, but don't worship Caesar. That's not in his sphere of authority. He doesn't have that authority. Don't have unqualified obedience to the state. And the question that everyone wants to explore when looking at Romans 13, and this question is, when is civil, Christian civil disobedience okay? When is it okay for Christians to um, break the law or to resist the state? And my answer to that question is basically it requires wisdom and humility. So let's explore it a bit. We need to be prayerful, humble and mature in our thinking if we're going to do this. Just saying that the government is making laws that we don't like or that are unbiblical, that's not enough of a line to draw to, to, to start breaking the law. Because every country, that's going to be the case. It was certainly the case in the Roman Empire. The, Ro- the Australian law is f- full of hundreds of unbiblical laws. Well, here's, here's three things. First of all, if the state bans your religion then you, you probably have a case for civil disobedience. If the state tells you that you can't preach the gospel or can't worship Jesus, then you have an argument for disobedience. Peter says in Acts 5.29, when the Jewish authorities tell the Christians to stop preaching the gospel, he says, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, and you can follow that principle, but you also have to consider that you might have jail time for Jesus. But again, you have to be careful with this because what if the law says you can't preach the gospel in certain contexts? Like if you are a doctor, a Christian doctor working in a public hospital, I'm pretty sure there's a rule that says you can't preach the gospel in your role as a doctor in the public hospital. Tell me, doctors, is that true? Maybe not. I don't know. There are doctors in the room. I know there are. Pretty sure it's true. Okay, well... What about school teachers, public school teachers in public schools? Yeah. yeah, okay. So so if that is a law in Australia, should you break the law in this case? I don't think, no, I don't think so. Because um, you, you're not being banned altogether. It's not like the, the, the government saying, in all circumstances you can't preach the gospel, you can't exercise your, right as, your religious rights. It's just saying in a certain context... Um, is inappropriate. And so you would be foolhardy if you were to see this as a case for civil disobedience. Probably Paul would say you're being unwise. And there is a big grey area um, because, you know, as a school teacher, for example, I know plenty of Christian school teachers in public schools who do not preach the gospel but who, who, who publicly, publicly say that they are a Christian and who will even say what church they go to and will even talk about what it means to be a Christian without evangelising. And they'll do that openly and, you know, um, with the knowledge of the school. Um, uh, is this evangelising? Probably not, but it's certainly promoting the, 
the gospel, promoting the kingdom of God. Um, where this particular dilemma is most complicated is for Christians in countries where evangelism is illegal. Uh, many Muslim countries, I think most Muslim countries, forbid Christian evangelism. Uh, especially, I think if, it, well, if, it, if a Muslim is evangelized too, you can get arrested for that in many countries. So do you obey God over the state in this situation? You have to listen to your conscience and be prepared to suffer the consequences. A second reason why you might, might um, uh, commit um, Christian civil disobedience is if the state commands you to sin. So if the state commands you to do what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. So in China, during the one-child policy, this was particularly hard for Christians because many women were forced to have abortions and against their conscience. Um, and so you know, there, there are live situations around the world where um, you might be forced to do something which is um, against your... Um, your faith in Jesus. And we have examples in the Bible where we see people resisting the government um, in a godly way. So in Daniel 3, famous example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took a stand against King Nebuchadnezzar, who required everyone in the land to bow down to his large golden um, statue, and they were thrown in the fire as a result. And a similar example is um, in Egypt, where the Hebrew mid midwives who did not kill their infant boys, Hebrew infant boys, as Pharaoh had decreed. They resisted the governing authorities in this situation. But again, Christians have to be careful not to take this too far. Allowing sin is not the same as enforcing sin. Um, Christians can't just stop paying taxes because they don't like how the taxes are being spent, um, just because the government is allowing sin in, in different contexts. And then there's a third case, which is a more tricky case, is if the state is perpetuating heinous sin and injustice. If the state is perpetuating heinous sin and injustice, then you might have a case for Christian civil disobedience. And this comes down to the conscience of each individual. And if we are going to participate in Christian civil disobedience, we cannot do it at the expense of other people. We must never cause violence or abuse on other people. We must not resist one ungodly law and then sin in doing so. Uh, so the, the Christian extremist who bombs an abortionist cl clinic is just a terrorist. You know, They deserve the full force of the law. A positive example of Christian civil disobedience uh, to um, the Australian government perpetuating what I would probably call a heinous sin was when Christians protested against the children in detention, and um, the, the Love Makes a Way um, organisation mobilised people to do this. So um, sitting on the floor of, um, of, of MPs' offices and praying and singing hymns um, to the point of being arrested sometimes. I don't think anyone actually got a record as a result. But, um, you know, and I've had friends do more extreme things than that. I had, I had a friend who, who was against um, uh, the... The, the act of the Australian military, so he would camp on live bombing ranges um, illegally. So you want to be thinking about this with your conscience. Christian apologist Mark Coppinger writes, um, as we make our case for liberty, we need to show our logic, expose the, um, 
um, the lack of logic of our foes, link arms with our co-belligerents, exhibit dignity in the face of indignities, and make it very clear that there are limits to our flexibility. And also, Christians have to toughen up as well and expect to be unpopular. Being unpopular is not a justification for civil civil disobedience. And Paul is writing in a context where in the Roman Empire, which was not a democracy, and where Caesar called himself God. And yet he's still saying this. So you might have heard what I've said this morning and thought, well, I feel like there is some clear direction, but there's a lot of grey area. And I think that's right. And that's what the Bible presents. The Bible presents examples of uh, godly people working with the state, even when the state is ungodly, uh, in, a, in a humble and submissive way, and also examples of godly people rebelling against the state as a matter of conscience because they're submitting to God as a higher authority. And we should also look to Jesus as an example who was, when he was arrested by the authorities, rebuked Peter for responding with the sword. Jesus went peacefully to be tried by the state, even though the trial you know, was, was unjust. And when Jesus was before Pilate, he could have resisted, but instead submitted to the process. And the irony was actually that Pilate only had his authority because Jesus gave it to him in the first place. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate in John 19 verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And one day the shoe will be on the other foot for Pilate and he will stand before Jesus and give an account of his life. And this is the true also for all of us. I want to finish just by reading a section from Isaiah 40, which should help us to have the right posture before the state and before God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen.